0: So our first speaker is, you're in for a real treat. Uh, Danny Duak uh, is a a leading scientist uh, in the world of vaccine development, but but perhaps even more so in pathogenesis. He's at the National Institutes of Health in the Vaccine Research Center. But today he's speaking to us as a private citizen. He's got an adjunct appointment at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, Danny uh, has really led the way in looking at the role that inflammation plays in HIV pathogenesis. Uh, a lot of what he's going to tell us today is really beginning to explain perhaps why we see such comorbidities we do even when people have undetectable virus and what's what's fascinating and, and really great about his presentation is that he'll take some pretty complex scientific issues but make it uh, understandable uh, for all of us but also Present it in a way that we can take it back to our clinic and actually use it every day as we're thinking about patient care. So, Danny, it's great to have you here.
1: Thank you, Michael. Private citizen. That's good. Thank you very much, Mike. Um, So, yes, I, I should say that as a government employee, I am here today as a private citizen. Uh, I am, in fact, this is how government employees spend their vacations. We come to Atlanta. And I would like to say that there is one other place where you will hear music like this, and that's Mike Sarg's house and his car, because this is his iTunes playlist. Um, so what I'm going to talk about immune activation, HIV persistence, and the cure. Um, I have no relevant financial affiliations to disclose as a government employee, but if any one of you can think of some ways that I can earn some extra cash, then see me afterwards. I'd be grateful. Um, so the learning objectives. Um, we Oops. Hang on a minute. Here we go. Um, the learning objectives, uh, there's three of them. Uh, we are going to attempt to identify the causes of immune activation in HIV disease. Uh, We're going to discuss the consequences of immune activation uh, in HIV disease, and then we're going to try and understand the interplay between immune activation, HIV latency, and we are going to do this in the context of the cure, functional cure or eradication for HIV infection that you've been hearing a lot about recently. Uh, We're going to start with a few questions. I'm going to ask you the questions. You're going to give your answers using your keypad, and we're going to see Uh, how your answers change by asking you the same questions at the end of the session. So the first question, what happens to systemic immune activation during combination antiretroviral therapy? It decreases to normal levels, it goes up, it decreases but remains above normal levels, it stays the same. Your answers, please. Good. You are very, very clever people. I'm beginning to love you already. All right. The next question. Which anatomical sites most likely contain the bulk of the HIV reservoir while on antiretroviral therapy? The blood, the brain, the gut, or all the lymphoid tissue? All right. This is very. I'm going to be very interested to see how this changes after the talk. And finally, is there ongoing virus replication on antiretroviral therapy? Yes, no, maybe only on Sundays. Ah. You are different from the San Francisco crowd that we spoke to a couple of weeks ago. All right, this is interesting. We're gonna see how opinions change after the talk. Let's start with um, a little bit of science now. So my talk's about immune activation. So what do we talk about when we talk about immune activation? What does it mean? Well, here's a nice study from Stacy and colleagues from a few years back. And what they did was to take people from before HIV infection and follow them through the acute phase You can see the viral load going up here in the white dots. And what they did was to measure a whole bunch of different chemokines and cytokines, markers of inflammation in plasma during this period. And what you can see is that the chemokines and the cytokines increase in their plasma levels at the same time or even before as virus load is going up. So immune activation occurs very early in HIV infection. And this is the normal innate immune response to viral infection in the acute phase of a viral infection. And this happens with any viral infection, be it hepatitis B, hepatitis C, or influenza. And you need this inflammatory response, because if you don't have it, you will die, because it's antiviral. But the special thing about HIV infection that differentiates it, for example from hep B or hep C, other chronic infections, is that as the virus load decreases, immune activation persists. Okay? And it's manifest in many ways. Cells of the inn- innate immune system are activated. As we've just said, there are increased levels of cytokines and chemokines floating around in your plasma. Acute phase proteins remain elevated in this chronic disease. Coagulation cascade is activated, and you all know that can't be good. There's systemic fibrosis, and there's activation of the molecular sensors of microbes that we'll discuss in a second. And also the cells of the adaptive immune system, the T-cells and B-cells, are um, activated. And we've known for quite a while that this is terribly important because the frequency of activated T-cells is a very strong predictor of disease progression. So what are the causes of this chronic immune activation? Well, first of all, I'd like to make the point that the raised cytokine and chemokine levels are not a cause. They're a consequence of immune activation. That's important to consider that. So something is making those cytokines and chemokines um, go up. Well, HIV is a virus, so there'll be HIV-induced activation of the innate immune system but I'd like to introduce to you the concept that the virus cannot be responsible for all of the immune activation. When virus load decreases after the acute phase, as we've just said, immune activation will remain elevated. Virus load is a poor predictor of disease progression. In fact, immune activation is a better predictor than virus load. Measures of immune activation predict this disease progression independently of the virus load. And elite controllers, you're you're, uh, familiar with these these patients who have uh, virus load that's controlled down to undetectable levels, but they can nevertheless progress, and they have increased activated phenotype T cells. And finally, when virus load is suppressed with antiretroviral therapy, immune activation still persists and predicts disease progression. Now, another thing that may cause chronic immune activation, which has been suggested by Steve Deeks and Peter Hunt recently, and I think they're very right in this, is that, as you know, you are immune-compromised when you have HIV infection, and there will be an increased antigen load from intercurrent infections. There'll be bacterial overgrowth. Control of herpes viruses is poor, even on therapy. So all of this contributes to ongoing immune activation. And finally, we and others over the years have described the translocation of pro-inflammatory mediators across the mucosal surfaces such as the gut. So let's discuss that now in a couple of slides. This is a picture of a healthy gut. Okay, here's the epithelium. And there are tight epithelial junctions here, sealing this barrier. And it's covered by this thick layer of mucus. Now, there are lots of antimicrobial peptides that are produced antibodies and cells, such as T-cells, macrophages, and B-cells that reside here. Now, the majority of all the CD4 T-cells in the body are in the gastrointestinal tract. And that makes sense, right? Because that's the biggest surface that you have, that your body has, that's in contact with the outside world, which is where all the bugs that are going to attack you come from. So most of the CD4 T cells are in the gut. And there's this crosstalk between the microbes, which are here in the lumen, and the epithelial cells here, and the immune cells here. A crosstalk that keeps the microbes out from your systemic circulation on the inside. But what happens in HIV infection? Well, right from the beginning of HIV infection, in the acute phase, the first thing that you see is a massive loss of CD4 T cells, all right? So that's where the majority of all the CD4 T cells are. So in the acute phase, you will have lost the majority of all the CD4 T cells in the body from the gastrointestinal tract. There is also an enteropathy. <clears throat> you can see here that there's enterocyte apoptosis, punching holes in this epithelial layer. And the result of that is that you have a 2 to 10-fold increase in gut permeability. You end up with a leaky gut. Similar, but actually worse than you get in inflammatory bowel diseases, such as Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. The fact that you have a leaky gut allows for the translocation of microbial products. So you see here bits of bacteria and stuff coming across. They enter the systemic circulation. And because they're bacteria, it'll cause systemic immune activation. It's not bacteremia. It's not sepsis but it's microbial translocation. So let's try and put this all together into what Steve Deeks likes to call my circle picture. We start with HIV. And by the way, this circle picture, it evolves over the years, and I keep adding bits to it. So if anyone has a good idea, come and see me afterwards, and I promise you I'll add your idea to my picture. HIV, it goes to the gut, it infects CD4 T cells, it wipes them out, it causes an enteropathy. That causes microbial translocation, which causes immune activation, and the virus, because it's a virus, also causes immune activation. Now, the immune activation causes proliferation of T-cells. Proliferating T-cells are target cells for the virus because HIV prefers to infect proliferating activated T-cells, so it makes more virus- which adds to the pool of virus. And so you already begin to set up this vicious cycle of infection immune activation. Now, the fact that you're infecting T cells means those T cells are going to die, and you end up with immune deficiency. Now, remember, this happens very early in infection. So by week three of infection, you are immune deficient. Okay? It's not when you have AIDS. It's early on. Now, immune activation does some more damage to the immune system. It damages the thymus, so you have a low thymic output. It causes fibrosis of lymphoid tissue, lymph nodes and the gut lymphoid tissue. And it causes generalized dysfunction of T cells and B cells. And all this immune dysfunction adds to the immune deficiency. And the fact that you are globally immune deficient means that you have poor control of pathogens such as CMV and other herpes viruses and many other pathogens that we don't know what they are but the fact that you can't you can't you have trouble controlling these pathogens means that they contribute to the overall immune activation finally another thing immune activation does which isn't so immunological but it's systemic is it causes generalized inflammation okay that was the first slide that we discussed The inflammation causes tissue damage to your lungs, to your heart, to your vessels, to your kidneys. You know all these conditions because your patients have them. And it causes a coagulopathy. And the result of that, as we've just said, is non-AIDS-related morbidity and mortality. So now, when you leave this course... This afternoon or tomorrow and someone says to you can you explain to me HIV disease pathogenesis you can explain it to them just remember this picture all right and I'll be testing all of you on it afterwards but we see HIV infection these days in the context of antiretroviral therapy okay And antiretroviral therapy sorts out a lot of these problems but they're dimmed out they haven't gone away completely and we're going to discuss that in a second Immune activation does a few things. It remains elevated above normal, even though you've decreased it with therapy. It causes the proliferation of CD4 T cells, as we said before. But in this context, this is good because it's adding to the pool of CD4 T cells, so that's some immune reconstitution that you're getting, okay? but you've still got immune reconstitution, and what it does is to cause ongoing inflammation and tissue damage and non-AIDS morbidity and mortality that uh, some of the other speakers later today will speak about. And so we can see this here. This is a measure of immune activation, activated phenotype CD8 T-cells. And we're looking at HIV-positive untreated, fully suppressed with antiretroviral therapy, And HIV uninfected people and what you can see is that t-cell activation declines during long-term antiretroviral therapy but remains elevated even after many years of virus suppression so you fix a lot of things with antiretroviral therapy but you don't fix it completely back to normal healthy levels and we know it's bad for you what we're looking at here is The frequency of activated CD8 T cells in blood, so that's immune activation, and immune reconstitution on therapy. And there is reduced CD4 T cell recovery, which is associated with increased immune activation. Okay? So it's not good for you. And this is a lovely slide that Peter Hunt put together um, last year at Croix, and he showed it again and it's evolving um, this year. He looked at markers of inflammation and gastrointestinal function dysfunction sorry uh, in terms of predicting morbidity and mortality for example look at this molecule here that you can measure in plasma ifap which is intestinal fatty acid binding protein and it's a marker of the health of the gastrointestinal tract that you can measure in plasma and that's an eight fold odds ratio risk of mortality that's quite amazing Look at this, soluble CD14, a marker of microbial translocation. IL6, a 70-fold increased chance of mortality. It's quite unbelievable. So these markers of inflammation and gut barrier dysfunction actually predict mortality independently of CD4T cell count and importantly, independently of virus load because these individuals are fully suppressed with antiretroviral therapy. So inflammation... And the causes of inflammation are absolutely critical in the context of antiretroviral therapy. So any of you who are familiar with Star Wars, I'm sure quite a few of you are, especially if you have children like I do. This is my nine-year-old son favorite slide. Um, Know that there is a light side and a dark side to everything, even me. So immune activation fulfills those criteria as well, Obi-Wan kenobi and the young Anakin Skywalker. The good side of immune activation, remember the first slide? Innate immune responses. Antiviral innate immune responses. That's what inflammation does normally, and it's good for you, because if you didn't have it, the virus itself would replicate and kill you. And immune activation also causes proliferation of CD4 T cells, so it helps to restore those depleted pools when you put people on therapy. But what happens when immune activation turns to the dark side? Well, CD4 T-cell replication generates target cells for the virus. And you get HIV replication as a result of that. It causes thymic dysfunction, exhaustion of T-cells and (coughs) B-cells, activation of cells, elevation of chemokines and cytokines. It causes fibrosis of your lymphoid tissue. So your lymph nodes become scarred. Okay. It causes generalized tissue fibrosis in the liver, in the kidney, in the lung, and so forth. It activates the coagulation cascade, which can't be good for your vessels, and plenty of other things, dot, 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 which we are discovering as the days go by. So there is a good side and a bad side to immune activation. But what about immune activation in the context of HIV persistence, and therefore a cure? Because if we want to cure people, eradicate people of their HIV virus. We are going to have to reduce the reservoirs of HIV as much as possible. The questions are, does inflammation that we've just described contribute to ongoing HIV persistence during antiretroviral therapy? And the corollary is, well, does any remaining HIV replication while on therapy, does that contribute to persistent inflammation, which we know is bad for you? And can novel therapies reduce reservoir size, such as anti-inflammatory drugs, for example, and enhanced HIV-specific immunity? Um, Is that going to be beneficial? Now, it's very difficult in humans, as you know, to establish cause and effect. But we can do what are essentially some experiments in humans. For example, the group in Barcelona took a cohort of infected people, measured their activated CD8 T cells during raltegravir intensification in blue compared to standard therapy in yellow. And what they found, you can see here if you follow this blue line, is that raltegravir intensification, so you're reducing any residual virus replication even though the virus load is always zero. Raltegravir intensification reduces immune activation significantly more Than conventional therapy. So maybe there is ongoing replication, and it is causing residual immune activation. And it's also been shown that raltegravir intensification in these nine subjects actually results in a reduction in infectious units of virus in an infected individual. And it also reduces, at the same time, CD8 T cell activation. So you're reducing residual virus replication, and you are reducing immune activation. However, in this study, if you measure virus in plasma here and here, and you associate it with CD4 or CD8 T cell activation here, you do not see an association between plasma measures of viral persistence and T cell activation in blood. So what's going on here? We seem to have a contradiction. Well, where you look, how you look, for the virus and immune activation is absolutely critical. If you look in the tissues, such as in the few remaining CD4 T cells that are in the gut, if you measure HIV in the rectal tissue on therapy and compare it to the frequency of activated T cells in the rectal tissue in this study here, and the same in this study here, you find a much stronger association between cell-based measures of virus persistence and T cell activation in the gut. So where you look is absolutely critical. And I think this study from Diane Havlir's group um, really uh, nails it. It's a wonderful study. Um, They uh, put these guys on raltegravir intensification, and they found that it reduced immune activation and HIV RNA levels, but in specific sites, differentially. So not much in peripheral blood, didn't do anything in Duodenum. But if you look in the ilium and the colon for activation and the terminal ilium for HIV, you find a specific effect in specific tissue sites. So is there ongoing HIV replication during suppressive antiretroviral therapy? Well, as I said before, although complete inhibition of virus replication is unlikely to be curative in itself, all cure strategies are based on, are predicated by first having achieved complete suppression of virus replication. Otherwise, you're not going to get anywhere. Now, there is a ton of evidence against ongoing HIV replication on antiretroviral therapy. But I think there is increasing evidence because of how we measure the virus and where we measure the virus that in some individuals with viral loads of zero in the plasma, increasing evidence in favor of ongoing replication. And the evidence is that it is associated with ongoing immune activation. And what I've said is that the source of the sample is key. Do you look in the blood or do you look in the tissues? Because if you're going to be looking in the blood and you don't detect any virus, you'll say, fine, the therapy is working absolutely perfect. We've completely suppressed virus replication. But if you were to look in the rectum or the terminal ilium or a lymph node, you might see ongoing replication. And the assay that's used to measure the virus is critical. You know about the Berlin patient, Timothy Brown, and you know about the baby who was cured uh, that was um, described at Croy. We can say that those people are cured because we looked for virus with incredibly powerful tools in tissues. And, And unless you do that, then you are not going to be able to make a comment on curing people of Of virus that they are harboring so final piece of data the Visconti cohort uh, that was described at Croy as well this year very interesting um, with respect to activation immune activation and their reservoir this was 14 subjects who started therapy very early after infection they remained on combination antiretroviral therapy for many many years and then therapy was stopped Um, and you can see here Virus load in PBMCs, so this is cell associated virus in people during acute infection, chronic infection, and treated. And elite controllers here with very low virus load. Now, the (coughs) Visconti patients, the post treatment controllers, did not rebound when combination art was stopped. And like elite controllers, they had low cell associated hiv dna but remember elite controllers can progress what was special about the visconti cohort was that when they were taken off therapy and this very low cell associated viral load was measured it was also found that they had extremely low t cell activation so that perhaps is a cure is a is a clue to tie in ongoing immune activation and ongoing reservoir uh, in cells of virus so we'll move on to slide 28 now, immune activation and HIV persistence. How can we put this together? What mechanisms can associate immune activation with HIV persistence? But more importantly, and with relevance to, uh, to yourselves, how may these associations direct therapeutic interventions to make people better, even when they're on therapy, and potentially to cure them? So we left it here, remember? We had all this badness caused by the virus, which is suppressed, but it doesn't all go away, and we've got ongoing immune activation. So some bad things that immune activation can do, it causes the proliferation of cells, right? And if one of those cells that it's going to cause to proliferate contains a virus, even though that virus might be resting, from having one infected cell, you now have two infected cells, all right? even if you're not producing virus. So immune activation will maintain the reservoir, even if no virus is being produced, but it may also cause production of virus. So you can have de novo infection, even during therapy. So let's take immune activation, and let's put it to the center of our picture and see what it does. It causes low thymic output, It causes fibrosis of lymphoid tissue. It causes poor immune reconstitution, poor CD4 T-cell renewal. It causes dysfunction of T-cells and B-cells, so you are still immune-compromised, and it causes mucosal damage. These are all the immunological things that immune activation does. That results in poor pathogen control and microbial translocation of these products into the systemic circulation, which causes... more immune activation. So you've set up that cycle there. We've just discussed that immune activation also has effects on the virus. It causes the generation of target cells for the virus to infect. It causes proliferation of that infected cell population. It may cause virus transcription, virus production, and potentially new infection events, even on therapy, which causes the production of more HIV, and because it's a virus, it will cause immune activation. And because you're immune suppressed, you're also going to have poor immune control of HIV itself, which allows you to make more HIV, and then you will suffer from the effects of HIV infection Low, lymph, low thymic output, lymphoid tissue fibrosis, and so on and so forth. Now, I don't want you to go away feeling depressed because of this slide, okay? This, this paints the picture, but it's important because by understanding pathogenesis, it points to where we can intervene therapeutically, okay? Each one of these phrases here, each one of these arrows here, Each point along these arrows here, we can intervene therapeutically, and we're doing it right now. Here is a list of therapeutic interventions that are in studies, in development, and in people's heads, such as anti-infective therapy. Well, if we think CMV is causing immune activation, let's treat people for CMV with gan Let's stop microbial translocation. Let's have growth hormone and IL-7. Let's prevent fibrosis with ACE inhibitors, ARBs, and drugs like perfenadone. Let's use anti-inflammatory drugs such as chloroquines, NSAIDs, and the statins, biologics such as TNF inhibitors and anti-interferon alpha, and let's prevent the coagulation cascade with low-dose warfarin and aspirin. But what's important for you to understand is that combination therapy is absolutely critical. And in the context of the cure, Multiple mechanisms account for HIV persistence, as we've just discussed, and they're all being addressed therapeutically. But the unifying theme is to reduce HIV reservoir size, reduce inflammation, increase immune function, early antiretroviral therapy, and intensification, We can do gene therapy to reduce the reservoir size, and you'll be hearing more about that in the future. Stem cell transplants, not for everyone, but a proof of principle that they can reduce the reservoir size. We have drugs with biologic activity against the latent virus, and vaccines may enhance host clearance mechanism. And again, combination therapy is going to be necessary, I believe. So let's go back to our questions. What happens to immune activation during antiretroviral therapy? It decreases to normal levels, it goes up, it decreases but remains above normal levels, it stays the same. Answers, please. Great. You beat San Francisco. It decreases to above normal levels. So it does decrease but it always stays above normal, and that level of immune activation predicts morbidity and mortality from non-AIDS causes. Okay, which anatomical site most likely contains the bulk of HIV reservoir on antiretroviral therapy, blood, brain, gut, or all the lymphoid tissues? All right. I'm going to have to change my talk because everyone puts the gut at the end. It's actually all lymphoid tissues because the blood and the brain and the gut are all lymphoid tissues. So don't forget about the lymph nodes and the spleen and the lung and everywhere else. It's everywhere. Finally, is there ongoing virus replication on antiretroviral therapy? Yes, no, maybe only on Sundays. <laughs> Good answer. I think there is, but I also think all of those answers are right. In some people, it might be only on Sundays. I think there's a lot of variability. Um, I'd like to thank all my collaborators, the people who fund us, and all of you for listening. Thank you very much.
0: Yeah. So, there's a couple of ways to ask questions. Um, encourage you to go to a microphone in the aisle where Dr. Linux is. Um, or uh, fill out a question card and pass it to the end, and we'll bring it up to me. But Jeff, let me start with you. Danny, in the uh, Barcelona group, since raltegavir has such a rapid onset, why did it take 24 weeks to see an effect on immune activation?
1: Because you you don't what, immune activation if you if you. I think that immune activation is caused, for example, by translocation across the gastrointestinal tract. Um, From the early stages of infection, you will have fibrosis at that site. You are not going to fix the fibrosis by reducing virus load very quickly. You're going to have to let a lot of other things come into play. So I think that's why immune activation has its effects, um, predictive effects on mortality, morbidity, independently of virus. The virus causes it all, don't get me wrong, but once it's done its damage, it's done its damage, and then it's other factors that you're going to have to fix, not only the virus. So fix the virus first, but then concentrate on all the other things. Danny, you, you convinced us about immune activation and inflammation. Yet at the same time, we know that the life expectancy of someone with HIV who's appropriately treated is now approaching that of the general population. How do we put those two things together? Well, approaching that, um, I think, are the key words. And it's it's not that of the general population. And as our drugs get better and we start people on therapy earlier, then I think it will approach the general population more and more. I don't think it will ever reach it unless we address ongoing problems such as inflammation. So just in in rejoinder, there's some interesting data from Denmark that if you take out other important cofactors like substance use, hepatitis C you're left with a population where it's actually the same. HIV infected is the same life expectancy as the general population. So I'm, I'm, I'm not a clinician, and I, and I go by what my clinical friends such as yourself tell me, and there are some people, such as Steve Deeks, who would not agree um, wholeheartedly with you on that point. So um, you'll have to have that fight with him.
0: Several uh, other questions, sorry. Several
1: other questions, I realize I
0: have my microphone off. Um, that, relate to raltegravir in this intensification issue. So, first off, you show that the circles increase and that that's an implication that there might be ongoing replication. But there was a recent study out of uh, somewhere, I forget where, where they used IL-7 to stimulate uh, uh, memory cell uh, development and then also gave raltegravir and maraviroc. And they did not show any... Uh, change in the uh, size of the reservoir and one of the possible reasons some people postulated is because there's ongoing replication that wasn't stopped even with raltegravir and maravroc I, I don't personally believe that but wh- what I, would your comment? I,
1: I do believe that there's um, ongoing uh, replication I think there are potentially problems with drug penetration to tissues such as lymph, lymph nodes and data will come out um, uh, during the next year from Tim Shacker's lab uh, he's talked about it um, Uh, I think IL-7 is also problematic because IL-7 activates the LTR of HIV, number one, so it will cause um, uh, production of more virus. Um, IL-7 also causes proliferation of cells. And if you have an infected cell, even if that virus is completely shut down and latent and that one cell becomes two cells, you have now doubled the size of your reservoir, irrespective of measuring any virus. Right. So,
0: okay. And so the the other question is... um, regarding gut microflora. So there's a lot of focus now on the gut microbiome. And so this question is, uh, if you improve the gut microflora, would that help reduce the leakiness of the gut?
1: Yes. Um, and there are some preliminary data from Jason, Jason Brenchley's lab. Uh, he treated macaques, um, non-human primates, with probiotics and prebiotics. And uh, you see a change in the microflora, and you see... Um, an improvement in disease course and there are a number of studies using antibiotics prebiotics and probiotics um, and colostrum uh, in HIV infected people and I think we may see some benefit
0: okay this next question is it fair to assume that uh, tissues that manifest primary HIV effects of brain heart kidney etc which can be found uh, to have cd 4 receptors can they represent latent infection in other words uh, the tissues themselves could they be uh, a source of reservoir in addition to the lymphoid okay
1: um, I, I will I'm pretty well known for being um, I wouldn't say dogmatic but opinionated about this um, I think HIV infection is a CD4 t-cell disease okay I think CD4 t-cells are the first cells that are infected they are the reservoir we have spent a lot of times, sorting macrophages out of infected people. and We've never found an infected macrophage. I will make an exception for microglial cells in the brain during AIDS. Mm-hmm. Right. That's what, what I'm about, saying.
0: What about Gindelman's work way back when in Nebraska with all those... Way back
1: when is a problem. <laughs> Nowadays, we can sort using flow cytometry to 99.9% purity. If you do that, you don't find any other cells apart from, apart from T cells that are infected.
0: Okay. Let's dig a little bit more to this ongoing replication issue because I think you and I still disagree on that and that if 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 we have I know you We also
1: disagree it. on your taste in music.
0: Well that's true. I love that music. Don't you love give it up for that music. Isn't that great <laughs> stuff? Yeah. All right. See? You're in the south, dude.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> but but the but the my thought is that there should be some emergence of a uh, resistant virus over time. I mean over 10 or 15 years that the chance when you have a virus that Makes that many mistakes to, when it replicates, the, the probability of a single resistant virus being produced is,
1: seems to be pretty high over there. The there, long are, there are time. two aspects to this. The first one is that if there is poor penetration of drug into tissue, uh, which there is, of certain drugs, um, that virus will replicate and there'll be a de novo infection in the absence of that drug. So you will not see evolution of drug resistant mutations in that setting also um, I think we've only reached the stage where we can interrogate virus sequences in tissues such as lymph node quite recently and I think what we'll be finding is that in individuals where there is ongoing replication you will see evolution of virus
0: and I just counter uh, just by saying that you're right there could be some tissues where there is absolutely no penetration but you could also see that there could be some tissues where there is partial penetration. Yes. And levels are kind of low, which is a perfect recipe for emergence of a resistant variant. And then if it got root, I would think that it would
1: emerge. It is. And I, I honestly think that we are going to witness all those scenarios uh, in different people. Okay. O-
0: on Sundays.
1: And on Sundays. <laughs>
0: Great. Thank you very much, Danny. Wonderful you. talk. Appreciate it.